I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Rich Text, a podcast about our cultural obsessions like non-bachelor reality TV, books, scripted television, Netflix romantic comedies, and cultural trends. Today's episode is public, available for free and paid subscribers. As you guys know, most of our Rich Text episodes are behind a paywall, which makes it possible for us to continue doing this work. But we are so excited to be able to offer occasional episodes for free. We asked our wonderful community on Instagram for questions for a Q&A episode, and we got so many excellent ones that so many. we decided to break it into two episodes. So today's episode will be free, and it will focus on work and culture, including, of course, The Bachelor franchise. And part two will be behind the paywall. It will get a little bit more personal. We'll be discussing friendship, dating, marriage, parenting, and fashion. So if you are a free subscriber and you enjoy what you hear today, maybe consider subscribing, even if just for a month and and trying us out and seeing if you get value from that subscription. And if you cannot afford that and or you don't want to support us that way, that is totally fine. We are so grateful to have you here either way. Yeah. Let's dig into this because I'm excited. Normally, we're talking about something dumb like Love is Blind or a Netflix <laughs> movie. And today, we're talking about something very important, us and our work, which is... I mean, what could be more important? What could be Claire? more important than us? <laughs> so we, st- we have to start a batch of questions generally about work, the work we do career. So I guess our first question is, any advice for someone making a career pivot? We, of course, recently went through a a career pivot ourselves. And (laughs) it was a forced 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 pivot. Well, this is the thing. I feel like ill-equipped to offer advice because I would never have made a pivot. Like for years, honestly, for years, people were telling us like, you should leave. You should take the podcast solo and do it outside of HuffPost and capitalize on how well it's doing. And we were just like, yeah, but HuffPost is what we know. And we have our friends here and our teams and the support that we're used to having. And we are comfortable. Benefits. (laughs) Benefits. Yeah, exactly. We are certainly imperfect vessels for any advice. Just want to say that up front. But I will say that there is a real joy in choosing to do something new or kind of being pushed off of the cliff is is sort of how I see it with us and then kind of being forced to sink or swim. Like I, I think that it has forced us to be more creative, to really think about what we want to do, what we like to do, what an audience might actually find value in us doing. And that has definitely been a challenge, but it's also been really cool. So I would say if you are making a career pivot, first of all, don't be afraid to try things out and see kind of what works, depending on what industry you are in, (laughs) of course. And also that it's okay to need to prioritize things that will allow you to keep living your life, both in terms of schedule, but also in terms of needing to prioritize, you know, a a job or a career in which you get benefits or needing to prioritize work that will actually bring you an income that you can live comfortably off of. Like, I think that career and work is this really thorny thing where passion is at the center, especially of a lot of creative careers, but also labor is labor and labor is something that is paid labor is something that is necessary for the vast majority of of people to be able to survive. Yeah, I think that's true. I think if possible, I would say have a cushion for yourself. Prepare yeah. to have a period of time when you're not going to necessarily be making the money that you are making or where you're still finding your footing and be ready to, if you can, you know, live off of savings for a little while or have something set up that will carry you through that that period where you're where you're making things work. But you know, I think that there is a lot of empowerment feels like the wrong word, but like it can feel really good and make you feel really confident to 
to make a decision and make that change happen for yourself. And yeah, I do think that making that happen after a strong push has been really great for the way that we look at ourselves as professionals and think about our work. It just feels like we're more in control. And and that's a great feeling. So if you're looking at a career pivot, best of luck to you. Seek out advice from lots of people and not just us. <laughs> Let's move on. If you could snap your fingers and have your HuffPost jobs come back, would you? Good question. What do you, Claire? I mean, it's complicated. I'd like to have another <laughs> child. I know that at BuzzFeed, they get six months of maternity leave. So yes, I would love to have that. In pretty much every other respect, though, I think we were ready Done. ready to move on. Like I had so many yeah. wonderful years at HuffPost. I had a couple editors who really changed me as a writer and as a person and who I will just like love forever for what they did for me but like that time had kind of passed for us I think we were ready to go yeah I think that's exactly it like I also formed so many meaningful connections both personal and professional and grew so much in my time at HuffPost like both of us were there for 10 years we went from our early 20s to our early 30s there and that's a really really big deal. But I also think that you start to kind of feel it in your bones when something has run its course. And we were both scared to make that leap and unsure what that would look like. But we both, I think, had gotten that in your bones feeling. And Mm -hmm. so when the layoff came, it was almost a feeling of release in addition to being kind of startling. It was like, okay, now we've been given permission to do the thing that we probably should have been doing already. Yeah. It was hard to make that decision because like I I had been through and you had, I think, a couple lifetimes at HuffPost already. (laughs) And then I'd seen people come and go. And then that's when these people were sort of delivered into my lab who were were, like put in charge of me. Yeah. And so I I kept thinking like maybe there's another life for me here at HuffPost. It's happened before. But I I do think that that allowed me to let things linger past the time when we should have been gone. So here's a question. If you weren't doing the awesome, thank you, work you're doing, what would you do or be? Oh, God. So I ended up doing what I do because I wanted to work in book publishing. I think I've talked about this before. It was impossible to get a job in book publishing when I moved to New York. And I got an internship at HuffPost while I was still trying to get a publishing job. And so I ended up doing this instead. That is not an ideal alternate career. It is just like hard to get into. Pay is very bad. A lot of grinding years of doing mostly administrative work and sort of being weaned out through attrition for people who go into editorial at publishing houses. So I can't say that I look back and I'm like, that's what I would have been doing. That was, I also thought about going into academia. My brother and my dad are both English professors another field that is not looking very promising to get into these days. (laughs) That was the other thing I was thinking about doing when I ended up getting a job at HuffPost. I don't know, man. Sometimes I think my plan B is becoming a therapist, but like, would I inflict me on on patient-seeking therapy? Maybe not. I think you'd be very soothing. (laughs) I'm worried that I would do the thing that bad therapists do where they start wanting to just talk about themselves. (laughs) I know what you mean. A similar thing happened to me recently. And they're like, I'm paying you. (laughs) Please. Oh, oh my God. Let's see. What would I be doing? I mean, I also had a few options in mind when I got my HuffPost job. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I graduated, you know, with a degree in sociology and poli sci. And I was sort of like, oh, writing is a thing that I love. So maybe something in media would be great. Or I was thinking about maybe going into some sort of like educational policy role. Education was always a really big part of growing up, something that I cared about. I went to a summer camp that really you know, for most of my life that really drilled in the idea that education is how you kind of change the world. And so I knew I didn't want to be a classroom teacher, but I thought that if I could do something kind of on the policy side that could impact education, that that would be really cool and fulfilling. And it was sort of like, well, 
guess I should try this media thing first because that seems like a real crapshoot. And so I should try it when I'm like young and can live in a really shitty apartment for a while when yeah. I'm making very little money. And so, yeah, I just kind of ended up falling into it and discovered that working in media could mean a lot of different things. And I think that our, both of our careers have had a lot of different iterations. And I do, I do like the idea that that could continue to kind of grow and, and yeah. morph into new opportunities as we as we age in this workforce. Absolutely. Looking ahead, I definitely think it would be interesting to eventually work more behind the scenes on things. I think another thing I thought originally at HuffPost is I'll just be an editor. And it turns yeah. out that you can't really just be an editor. You have to be a writer first. And once I started writing, I stopped thinking about editing. But down the line, I think I would be interested in working at a more behind the scenes level in the field. So yeah. We're young, actually you know, agree. we're not even yeah. 40 yet. We have so many years <laughs> exactly. ahead of us. Imagine us at 70 recapping The Bachelor season like <laughs> oh, dear 62 Lord. of The Bachelor. We'll do it. Just watch. <laughs> so I think that leads us into another question, which is like, tell us about the history of your jobs and the podcast and your friendship and how has having a podcast helped or hurt your friendship? So we just talked a little bit about the history of our jobs. Fun detail about how I actually did end up at HuffPost is that the reason that I met the blog editor at HuffPost who ended up hiring me as an intern is because my brother wanted me to meet this guy's fiance, who was my brother's grad school classmate, so that she could basically convince me that it was a bad idea to try to go to grad school in English. We had more similar <laughs> era interests than my brother and I did. And he was like, think about really think about getting a graduate degree in, in modernism, like talk to Anna, she'll tell you. And we all went out to dinner. And I did not go to grad school. I got this job at HuffPost instead. Lucky I did me. not know that. It's, that <laughs> is fantastic. Look, it is it is our all these sliding doors moments. You yeah, know? my brother has really like been the architect of so much of my life, and <laughs> so I ended up at HuffPost, and I was working as a books editor by the time that the podcast started. We started the pod. Yeah, Emma was working as the women's editor. On the women's editor. Yeah. I'm like, what was I doing at that point? <laughs> I don't know. We both we both did uh, a lot of stuff. Yeah, and since then we then moved editorially onto the same team eventually for our last few years yeah um, so that kind of ended up working out well but Claire and I were more like acquaintances than friends when we started the podcast we knew we had this overlapping interest and Claire thought I think rightly that we might have an interesting dynamic together and that this was a thing we thought we would try we didn't know if it would make it past even the idea stage, to be honest. So I don't think we could have predicted in that moment that we would have this like really fruitful friendship and creative partnership now, seven years down the line. Like that is truly something that just happened really organically. And I feel really lucky. Yeah, it could have gone so differently when you think about it. I mean, it is interesting how little we actually knew each other when we started the podcast. I yeah. think a lot of podcasts, for good reason, are started by like best friends who want to share their conversations, which is more <laughs> what this is, because we didn't start Rich Text until we were already good friends. But the question about whether it's helped or hurt our friendship is funny to me, because obviously... It really helped it. I don't know if we would yeah. be friends today in any meaningful sense if it weren't for the podcast. It could have changed both of our whole trajectory at HuffPost. If we hadn't started right. it, we might never have worked on the same team. Like, it's hard to say what would have happened, but I don't know that we would have become close. Yeah, I would say that because a lot of the friendships that you create at work are are simply about proximity. Yeah, right. Like you're working with someone and you realize you have things in common with them and you forge this bond um, and you know some of those only exist in the workplace and some of them kind of grow outside of that I think we also worked in a really young and social work environment that sort of encouraged friendships mm -hmm. within the newsroom and so I think it was a combination of all of those things that led us here but yeah the podcast has been great for our friendship yeah it's invented <laughs> like our friendship it invented our friendship We're here because and of it exactly yeah I think even when we left HuffPost I don't know that we were anywhere near as close as we are now because we were doing the podcast together, which was a huge thing. It was maybe a third, 20% to a third yeah. of our week. And I was working a lot with 
say, our editor, you are working with your editors. We had other really close social and professional bonds. And now it's just us. We went from being like good friends, close friends to like, we are the person that we're each talking with all day, every every day. day. And that was like a big (laughs) shift. Yeah. Um, And it's been awesome. Frankly, Like, I certainly only like you more. So that's cool. That's so sweet. Yeah, I feel like it's gotten stronger and stronger. Yeah, but we are both people pleasers. So who knows, maybe there's like a deep well of resentment that we'll find out about later. In like 10 to 12 12 years. years. I actually fucking hate her. (laughs) But I I do think that that look, the people pleasing instinct can be a bad thing, obviously, in, in certain respects in any relationship. But I also think that our people pleasing does fundamentally come from a place of empathy. And so I do think that that has helped us work together so closely for so long. Like I do think if we couldn't kind of see what the other person was going through and feel responsible for doing right by the other person, this kind of partnership wouldn't work. And also because, you know, we didn't form this partnership in a kind of legal and monetary sense until we'd been working together for years already. I think that that was also very lucky. Like we have the level of trust and honesty with each other that like we can have hard conversations about the future and present of our creative work together. And we both are invested in each other continuing this partnership and also having opportunities outside of it. And so I I do think the friendship plays into a lot of like why why it's been able to work. Should we talk about maintaining work-life balance? Sure. How do we maintain work-life balance? What is work-life balance? (laughs) I mean, I have a lot more free time. Here's the thing. Like, I I don't have a child. So I think that that is just – there is just more time to play with to an extent. And that is certainly helpful. I do think that in some ways, like, doing the work we do now, there are times when maybe I'd be working that I wouldn't have been working if we were at kind of like a normal hours job. But also, in a way, we kind of work fewer hours and do more because our work Mm. is more directed. Yeah. And when we have a break in the middle of the day, we're not sitting on Slack being like, should I be writing? What am I doing? Am I just Mm. chatting? I'm available. We're not like performing availability. It's like, Okay. Yeah. There was so much time that we used to spend just sitting on Slack being like, is something going to happen that I need to write a blog about? Exactly. Yeah. And you, when you release yourself from that, you realize like that's a lot of hours that you could be doing other things. You could be doing chores or you could be like going to an exercise class or you could be playing with your child. Like, yeah, these are valuable hours. You could be washing pee out of 15 pairs of your child's pants, (laughs) which is what I've been doing. While also watching screeners. While also watching screeners. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing about the way this has evolved is that because I had a kid at around the same time, or a little bit before this all happened. And he was sort of just getting sick a lot. Like he, you know, you send your kid to daycare, they're getting sick all the time. He was constantly sick. I feel like in a way, we had this sort of incredible freedom to kind of try to shape our workload around our availability, the the needs. And I don't want to have to limit our work time forever to like, we might only have two full weeks of daycare a month. Like I'm hoping that that will continue improving, but it has just allowed us to be pretty flexible. And that's been like this huge gift that not everyone has. And sure, sometimes it feels like all my time is either with Max or it's working, but a lot of our work is really fun. We get to decide what it is. And if we really feel like we can't handle it that week, then we get to say, we're going to push that a week. And it's, I just have no complaints. We have the most incredible. Yeah, it is like, a gift. Like anytime anyone asks me, I'm like, lifestyle wise, the only thing that's frustrating about freelance life is healthcare. Truly, yeah. be, beyond the benefits part, like the lifestyle has been absolutely wonderful. And it's not like we're isolated because we work with each other. I think I would go crazy if, you know, I wasn't talking to someone else if I didn't feel like there was a collaboration. But like we get to have that too. So yeah. I feel bad talking about it (laughs) because I'm like everyone should be able to have this kind of 
life, in my opinion. And I still complain all the time because that's just my personality. (laughs) But no, we're very lucky that we have so much control over our work life balance and that we both like want each other to have it. And so that makes it easier to right to have it for ourselves. So here's a question. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast about something else? constantly yeah yeah absolutely I mean I I think to an extent that's why we made (laughs) rich text like we do it's sort of it functions as as its own show and also sort of as bonus content sometimes in conjunction with love to see it but to us I think that it has allowed us to sustain our our work and show around the bachelor to have this other outlet where we are getting to talk about all of the other things that interest us in the cultural space in terms of our personal lives in terms of the things that we're grappling with as as women in our mid 30s and like I think if I didn't have this it would be really hard to only be making a show about the bachelor yeah we love doing love to see it of course but the show is something we've been covering for a long time it can get repetitive it can get depressing there's a lot of rough stuff going on in the bachelor franchise it is so reinvigorating to be able to do an episode about a new show that we're excited about, like F-Boy Island or Love is Blind, or to be able to talk about scripted TV and to be like, we are going to just binge all of these shows about tech startups, these scripted shows, and do an episode breaking them down in a format we've never done before. It's creatively fulfilling to switch it up a little bit. I think that we have talked about doing a more cohesive second podcast and- yeah. Because of the issues I was just discussing in the work-life balance question, it's been hard to feel convinced that we will have the time in our week consistently to do that and to add another weekly component to our schedule. And so we've kind of pushed that back repeatedly. But one day I would definitely be interested in making another sort of standalone cohesive podcast about a different cultural product or genre i totally agree and you know we have we have some we have some ideas ideas. (laughs) we're not gonna tell you let's talk about some questions about culture non-bachelor culture we're gonna get to bachelor questions in a minute that's its own category there (laughs) were enough that that had to be its own category so let's start off with what do you watch when you're not watching reality tv for the podcast Oh my gosh. <laughs> An what eclectic don't we mix. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say Rich Text is a receptacle for a lot of our thoughts on non reality TV. That is one of the joys and blessings of our work is that we get to just sit down and binge the Gilded Age for a day and be like, I'm working. <laughs> because we need to analyze this for the podcast. It's great when Adam walks in the room and I'm like, watching a screener for tell me lies and like, this is work it's very serious and he's order. like those are just two people really going at it on a dorm room yeah. bed and you're like, like yeah work yes. like I said yeah work very sexy work. <laughs> yeah I think you know we watch a lot of different stuff a lot of reality dating shows that are on streaming networks you know we watch all the Netflix dating shows love them f boy island i even watched dated and related which is a really bizarre netflix dating show about sibling pairs i only got like two episodes into that oh God, and i was like i can't it's such a mess i hate it's all so these bad. people <laughs> it was interesting to watch actually this is going to be a little sidebar and dated and related they bring in like five or six duos of siblings some of them are twins some of them are like brother sister pairs etc The idea is for them all to serve as wing men and women for each other with the idea being like, oh, it helps to have someone who knows you really well there to help you get in a relationship. I think that the limitation of having to cast sibling pairs only might have actually exposed how hard it is to cast really compelling people characters characters, because a lot of them were just like absolute snooze like I couldn't imagine having a conversation with them for 30 seconds I was like I simply don't care about any of these people and that is just a prerequisite for me loving a dating show and again I keep going back to f-boy island they cast that show so brilliantly the leads are always so good yeah and that is an elite hard fucking work elite level reality tv show really is Mm -hmm. in terms of scripted tv 
frankly, Bad Sisters is the, I think, like the best show on television right now, currently. And my thoughts probably change week to week, but I absolutely love Sharon Horgan. I absolutely love the kind of sticky women pushed to the brink topic and its exploration of emotional abuse and its exploration of the kind of collateral damage that can occur when people try to extricate themselves from bad situations, when there aren't really systems in place that can facilitate that and they have to take things into their own hands. And also, it's a comedy. I love a dark topic explored in a comedy. Same. Mostly because I like cannot handle horror or any sort of gore. So (laughs) dark comedy works great for me. Yeah, that one's definitely on my list because you have spoken so highly of it. I've been really enjoying the rehearsal, which is the new Nathan Fielder docuseries. I was watching it alone and then I liked it so much that I made Greg start watching it with me because it was that thing, you know, where you're like, you have to try this cake. It's just so good. I feel bad yeah. I'm eating it alone, <laughs> which normally I'm not that generous with cake or with, TV. with television. <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, occasionally. I was like, occasionally, this is good enough that I do actually feel bad. So we've been we're about halfway through and every episode, I'm just completely mind blown by it. It's such a rich meditation on social anxiety and the fear of death and the meaning of life to watch oh my god it's so good and I really hope that it continues to be this good throughout but yeah so we watched like a pretty eclectic mix of soapy YA drama and prestige TV shows we both love comedy. We love costume dramas. We watched Yellow we can get Jacket. Into a lot of things. I've even we've even been watching more violent stuff. Just yeah, we watch Squid Game Squid and Game Yellow Jacket for rich texts. <laughs> like that is what we do for the show. But it's been good for me. I th- feel like it's been great to feel my the, my like capacity to, to watch more kinds yeah. of TV has has been stretched because there's a lot of good stuff you miss out on when you're super squeamish. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Same. It's been good to kind of push ourselves. And I think we've discovered that we can love a lot of different things. And we just really, we really like television as a medium. Yeah, that is that is cool. Where do we look for media that centers 30 something women? Oh, man. I mean, I wish there was more of it. (laughs) Sex in the city. I will say that's Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, an old classic that frankly, now that I'm in my mid 30s, actually really holds up in certain ways, even if a lot of the cultural references and social mores have changed. There are real questions about dating and commitment and parenting and all of these things that I think actually do come up in the original Sex and the City series. I feel like the issue right now is that there's so many good TV shows and they're just harder to find because they're spread across so many streaming networks. And various platforms and so I don't know that there's one place that I would say go here and find it. I think you kind of have to just like cast about and you unfortunately do word of mouth. I mean I think that is part of why I really like Bad Sisters because all the sisters are in their 30s and 40s. I enjoyed the hookup plan on Netflix in which the characters were kind of on the brink of 30 and then as the seasons went on they got more into their 30s. You know what I loved where the characters are actually sort of edging into their 40s is Girls 5 Eva, which is, oh, yeah. It's a sitcom. It's a very, like, 30 Rock style Tina Fey sitcom, but it's really fun and on Peacock. And also Rutherford Falls, which stars a Native woman who is a museum curator trying to get a cultural center for her tribe's heritage, its own building in town, and... It's really good and I think under massively underrated. But so there are these like gems that you can find. I will say that I don't think that I really approach it that way. Like I don't think that I'm often thinking about my TV shows in terms of whether they're about 30-something women. So I guess I'm struggling a little bit because of that. Yeah, I think it's always a treat when you find that kind of relatability. But I also – it's interesting. I feel like I also – uh, gravitate a lot towards shows about younger women. Yeah. Um, well, that's... As, as kind of a way to, yeah, to tap into 
life experiences that you have had and sort of have the space to reflect on now. It's probably a reason. So yellow jackets, I think, is right. so good specifically because it toggles back and forth between girls who are in high school and women who are in their 40s. Yeah. And that kind of reflection is almost what you're doing with yourself as you watch the show. And then just shows about teenagers and and college students like Tell Me Lies, Sex Lives of College Girls. In a way, those things scratch an itch. I mean, Tell Me Lies is interesting because it is about a group of people who are maybe like a year or two younger than us. And a lot of the show takes place in 2007 when they're in college. So it's like even if it's not exactly (laughs) about women currently in their 30s, I think there is increasingly a lot of art being made by women who are currently in their 30s and 40s. And there is a sensibility there that you can kind of grasp onto. I agree. We got a couple questions about favorite books. Favorite books of all time, top three books, which book has stuck with you the most? I always struggle with favorite books because it's just like... Favorite anything is hard. Yeah, it's really hard. And I think especially with books, I have this sort of maternal, each one is so unique and special. Don't you just love them all in a different, not all, but like the ones that you love, you love them all in a different way. And also feel connected to them in different ways over time. Yeah. Yeah. There are books that I love because they did something for me when I was very young. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I always think about The Phantom Tollbooth because I think it is one of those books that taught me that I could spot analogy and metaphor. Mm -hmm. And that was a really, really powerful thing as a young reader to experience and be like, what they're doing is not quite on the surface and I get it. I think Phantom Tollbooth has that quality for so many people where you always feel like it's just your special secret favorite book it turns out like most people love it because (laughs) it does have that feeling of like it's not just that it's like showing you some secret kingdom it's like look at what you did you unlocked the secret how about that and you're like oh I'm special I get it and that is just like a magical quality in a book I I also loved the phantom tollbooth growing up obviously I think Two books that I've written about because of how much of an impression they made on me are Pride and Prejudice, obviously. Oh, my God. Pride and Prejudice was a book. I wrote an essay about this for HuffPost many years ago, but when I was around 10 years old, my mom gave me a copy of Pride and Prejudice because we had been talking about a book called The View from Saturday, and I was sort of analyzing it for her, this YA book, and she was like, I was so struck by how insightful you were about it. I knew you were ready for Jane Austen. And that was a moment where I was like, my mom is kind of bringing me into a new phase of of growing up by giving me this book. And it was a book that I learned to read by reading it over and over again. And it kind of introduced me to a new level of literature. And you can still, like, through the rest of your life, discover new things in it every time you read it. And the other is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, which my mom died before we ever talked about Woolf, but I know that she was also a great reader of Woolf. I, I have her copy of the book, And I read that in college. It both is about the death of a mother and kind of the emotional spot that she held in the family and the journey that they end up going through when she dies. And it also opened up my eyes to so many things that could be done with language and conveying meaning with with words. And so that book holds a really special place in my heart as well. I love that. Yeah, Jane Austen. Oh my gosh, I have some very old copies of Sense and Sensibility Mm. and Pride and Prejudice. Those were my two favorite that I read when I was young. Another classic author that really meant a lot to me when I was young is actually Jules Verne. Around the World in 80 Days was one of my favorites. I remember finding it in the library in elementary school and being very excited. And that was similarly, I remember talking to my mom about it and feeling like, I could read adult books now. There is a maturity that I think is conveyed through books Mm -hmm. sometimes. And I think that that's really special. 
In terms of books I've read more recently, Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is actually one that one of the most gripping books that I have read in the last 10 years. And that is one that just really stuck with me because it is written so beautifully. And I think it was a wonderful example for me about how I could become so engrossed in a story about someone having a life experience that I will never have Mm -hmm. and yet could feel such a well of empathy and and how good writing can really do that for you. It can create that, that bond and bridge cultural gaps in a way that I think is really special. Yeah. All of mine are such cliche answers. This is going to be my last one. But Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson, I always think of because I read it at a different point in my life. I think when I was in high school and college, I was reading a lot of classic literature for school. And just because, you know, my dad is an English professor, my mom also taught English and had a graduate degree in English. Our house was just like full of Austin and and. Dickens and all this stuff. That's what I just sort of read a lot of the time. And then I graduated, I started working in a field that had more to do with contemporary publishing. I was reading a lot of new fiction. And like, there's a lot of great stuff that is coming out. But most books, even literary fiction that comes out every year, they aren't going to be classics, right? They're just not as good. So like, you get used to kind of just like, okay, literary fiction. And then I read Housekeeping, which is pretty, you know, it's like 30 years old, but it's it's modern. She's a working author. It's modern. And I was like, oh, right. This is what it can be. Like, you're never feeling like she's writing something where she's straining or where she's unsure about the word to use or she's trying to impress you. Everything is just so crystalline and sure-footed. And it allows you to just get completely transported by this little world she's creating, this weird little world. And most of her books are a little more overtly drenched in American Protestant theology. And housekeeping is a little more offbeat. And it just completely blew my mind. And I always try to remember that when I'm reading a new book. And I'm like, is this good? Or do I just want it to be good? Because I want to be excited about something you know I think I just love books that like make me feel seen I'm still just like <laughs> oh I, yeah oh I get it I it's, it's the phantom tollbooth thing still oh yeah like, I think yeah I feel like recently it's just like books that satirize the cultural set that I exist in or or books that critique social media and technology that I've been very drawn to oh yeah to there's a lot of I'm just good fun satire coming out right now yeah Sorry, um, we talked okay. too long about that. No, <laughs> that's fine. We can all we can talk a lot about books. Other favorites. What is your all-time favorite rom-com? This Ugh, one's hard. That's really There's hard. There's so many good ones. And they're all can so it, different. Can we have a few? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there are a handful that like really really feel like classics to me. Like I could watch them mm. unlimited amounts of time. Yeah, I think that When Harry Met Sally is the one that always just has to come to mind. It's so I mean, perfect. It's just perfect. Like, yeah. it just is. Yeah. Nora Ephron is perfect and brilliant. And they have the leads have such chemistry. Like, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal are so good. And it's yeah. this cozy holiday and fall in New York. I mean, my God. Yeah. Oh. It just... It's just so it good. Hits, it hits all the things and it makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And it also doesn't feel like your brain is rotting watching it. Yeah. Like it has some substance. Carrie Fisher is so good in so it. So good. I think probably my most embarrassing answer is Sweet Home Alabama. I've always had this like <laughs> wildly soft spot in my heart for Sweet Home Alabama that I just cannot oh my justify. God. I, for some reason, I feel so bad for the Patrick Dempsey character what? in Sweet Home Alabama. At least I did when I watched it in theaters that I just never wanted to return to it. Oh, wow. No, I was all in on the Josh Lucas character and his like I sad eyes. I, honestly, I should rewatch it because I wonder how I'd feel now. It was like definitely I saw it in theaters and was like, 
I just I feel too much empathy for the rejected person yeah. and I don't wish to they went an interesting route there instead of making him an asshole they just made him right. like understanding and I actually liked it because I always found it kind of over the top when I was like why are they engaged this person who's just horrible absolutely awful no it is more realistic I uh, and and (laughs) sweeter and they do that also in an interesting way with like the Bill Pullman character in Sleepless in Seattle Uh, yeah he's also not an asshole some other classic rom-coms that I return to again and again and again Working Girl Mm. love Working Girl Love while you were sleeping. Oh, yeah. Oh, Which is just a bananas movie. Bananas. Oh, while you were sleeping is completely bananas. And that is actually a testament to how amazing Sandra Bullock is. And also, I think Bill Pullman and Peter Gallagher. But they make it that, work. Like, they make it work. They sell this completely <laughs> batshit premise. And yet, you aren't really caught on the insane timeline or the insane details. Like, this guy's in a coma and then she never corrects the fact that the whole family thinks that they're engaged. Like it, yeah. it doesn't really make sense if you pull at the threads, but the cast is so good and there's so much heart in it that it, that it just, it works. And I still just crave her fingerless gloves. Oh my God. That, I don't the know. fashion is great. I just love it. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Interestingly, working girl and while you were sleeping, both feature like working class romantic heroines. Yeah. Yeah. Which I feel like <clears throat> I don't, do we get that as much anymore? Like, I don't... I don't think so. I don't think so. This is probably actually the most honest answer because I've watched it the most times to all the boys I've loved before. I've watched the most <laughs> times of any movie probably in the I will say world. that is the only modern rom-com that has made it into my very intense constant rewatch cycle. Yeah. And Clueless. I think it's got to be Clueless. Yeah. Gotta Clueless be is like, I'm like, is it a rom-com? Is it a teen movie? It's kind of both. But yes, Clueless is Clueless yeah. is just spans categories. Yeah. We answered like 15 million movies. Obviously, the, the classic has to be When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. I think of it as like the platonic ideal of a rom-com. I agree. How do you feel about constant paywalls for news or streaming content? Does it impact you? It does. It does. It does impact yes. us. I feel like I have to have a subscription to everything because it is often my my work to consume whatever is behind it. We also yeah. provide paywalled content and that's how we make money so that yeah, we can I think- keep doing this. I don't think that it's obvious, although we do talk about it, but we make more money and make enough to survive from the Substack, not from Love to See It currently. And... I know that paywalls are annoying. I too find them annoying, but they are what have enabled a lot of people to make do creative money work. doing creative work. Yeah. And so I I feel fine about them, yeah. I guess. I try to respect the paywall. It is just a much more effective model for any kind of media than advertising. I understand is. the frustration because I do have it in my budget to just belong to all these things, but not everyone can set aside that much budget Do I think for it's it? like the ideal system? Definitely not. I think yeah. in an ideal world, there would just be free access to creative content and that funding would come somewhere else. Unfortunately, it's kind of a necessity right now. Yeah. So, you know, I don't have a subscription to everything, but I do have a subscription to like every major streaming service, most major news sources, Sometimes I will, I admit, do the thing where I evade the open paywall. incognito <laughs> ne- window and invade the and override a paywall for something that I don't have a subscription to. No I get it. Perfect. It is it's annoying. <laughs> but yeah, look, I have to respect the paywall because we also need the paywall uh, yeah, in order paywall. to survive. And so I I think that has given us some really great insight into how much of a difference in someone's life. Yeah. Paywalled paid content can what does bother me are the scammy feeling paywall and even like major publications will do this where it's like sign up for just one dollar a month and then it's like in small type it's like but after this month it will become thirty dollars a month and to unsubscribe you have to send us a letter to this address and you're like 
so I thought I was paying $1 a month and now I'm locked into like $30 a month until I go to the post office. What are you yeah, talking scams about? Are bad. Scams don't are bad. Scams are bad. Don't scam people. It should be easy to unsubscribe, in my opinion. And I encourage like it is fine to unsubscribe and resubscribe and unsubscribe and make it depending on your budget and what you're actually consuming. Like, support all of that we know that it's hard when everything is behind a paywall and especially because we're all used to free content that's how everything got started and then every outlet was like this is unsustainable we can't do this anymore and suddenly you have to pay for everything it feels like all that content's being taken away plus it used to be a lot more straightforward to pay for content I think in a budget-friendly way you buy one newspaper you subscribe to your cable package or you have just Netflix and now it's like everything and everything is costing more and more money I know how frustrating that is that is why we do try to make our personal subscription as accessible as possible and and you know we don't want anyone to ever feel like they have to keep subscribing but like content has to be paid for unfortunately for it to keep being made Exactly. Should we move on to questions about The Bachelor? Yeah, something we don't have to pay for. (laughs) They're just sending it out over the airwaves for free because who would pay for that much suffering? Not I. Not I. We would pay for it, though. Don't tell. Don't tell ABC. We actually would. But yeah, keep that on the DL. (laughs) Okay, so first question, to what do you attribute the spiral of mess and sadness The Bachelor seems to be taking? A uh, great question. I'm so glad it's not just us who feels this way. I feel like we were getting a little down on the show and people would always be like, why do you still watch if you hate it? And I was like, are we the only ones who hate this? It seems like it's just getting miserable. And I think more and more people are starting to talk about how miserable it's getting. I think that we've talked about it here and there, but one thing that we have talked about for sure is that The Bachelor has profited in a few different recent seasons from breaking the formula and having these dramatic incidents to end the season. And I think that one of the lessons that they've taken away from that is that they need those dramatic formula-breaking moments to make the show compelling, to make people feel like they have to tune in and the only way to like ensure that that will happen is to torture people. torture people to try to induce breakdowns to set up scenarios that make people feel trapped, overwhelmed, panicked and then to sort of profit off of filming it and filming the tears, filming the people having the horrible fight that no one really wants to be having and I think that they feel strongly incentivized to capture people in pain because that is what has been at the heart of a lot of these dramatic moments like the fence jump or like Ari dumping Becca on camera. Yeah, no, I think that that is exactly it. And I will say that obviously the show and, and really any reality television and certainly any reality romance television does involve some amount of inherent emotional exploitation right and the bachelor has always taken drama run with it made it the center villainized people made people kind of feel to an extent like they're insane and sort of trapped them in these lockbox circumstances that is part of the show i do think that yeah the change is what you're talking about claire coupled with the fact that i think we are at this moment in the culture where marriage engagement does not necessarily we are not like all fundamentally agreeing that marriage and engagement should hold the like highest most important place in our culture and this is a fundamentally conservative hetero white marriage show and so I think that that premise did allow the show to thrive for a really long time because it is simple. It is reflecting some like really basic, albeit problematic things in our culture. But now that the culture is changing and the conversation is changing in these major ways, instead of kind of figuring out how to grapple with that change within the world of the show, they have doubled down on that. And at the same time been like, well, if marriage and engagement are no longer the most important things, the central things, then we are still going to push this. 
but that's no longer going to be the central thrust of the show. And I think that the central thrust of the show is no longer building a cohesive romantic narrative to reach that pinnacle of a happy ending and instead is in creating situations in which people have to maximally suffer in order to get that happiness. And that is now like the emotional peak of each season rather than the proposal. And I think honestly, once the show's been on for a certain amount of time and most of the final couples aren't together anymore, you want to distract people from saying like, well, who even cares who ends up together? They're going to be broken up in six months anyway. I do think there might be an element of that at play too. Yeah, I think it's a good point. How does it feel to no longer be in the same age group or stage of life as most of the contestants? Or at least most of the women contestants, because well, the mo- men get to be They get to be older, but most of them, most of them are know, still I younger. Know. I mean... How does it feel? I mean, I don't wish to be 20 <laughs> again, so there is, there is certainly that. I will say that it... It's a, I, a lot of people do continue to recap The Bachelor for years after being like 30 or whatever. One thing that surprised me that I'm starting to feel is I feel bad judging people who are so young. Yeah. I, you know, I'm like, they're just out there making their 20 something mistakes and they're not as mature as they're going to be in 10 years. And what right do I have to like sit here, my imperfect 34 year old self and talk shit about a 24 year old? I do feel bad about that. Sometimes I try to I think we always do try to be understanding and empathetic and not just be like mocking people who now seem to me sort of like children in some ways and some of them are more mature than me to be fair but like right when they are acting wild I'm I'm like oh yeah but they're so young and that's that's their right to act crazy it definitely is a different experience critiquing people that you feel like are your direct peers versus critiquing people who are at a stage of their life that like you've had the time and space to reflect on yeah that coupled with the fact that we just like know more about the show and how it's made than when we started. And so, yeah, there definitely is an element of like, I think there are certain things about the premise of The Bachelor that allow you to tap into it and get into it at any age. But from a critiquing standpoint, it definitely has changed as as we feel that age gap. Yeah. I also just feel probably overly defensive of any woman over the age of 30 that comes on the show now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you regret showering praise on guys like Eric, who turned out to be more problematic IRL? I mean, regret is a strong word, but, you know, yes, I do always obviously hate to feel like I've contributed to someone being put on a pedestal on the show, a pedestal that they shouldn't be on. That is one of the challenges of talking about the show is that we don't want to approach every guy, especially (laughs) we would have this issue with the guys, approach them all with this deep-seated sense of like, well, they probably suck. We haven't figured it out yet, but they definitely suck. It's also simply not fun it's like, well exactly I, I, it's not fun like you want to yeah. ha- enjoy a little bit the excitement of thinking someone is cute or charming or you know with Eric I think we ended up defending him a little bit because it seemed like everyone hated him and we weren't sure why we we found him likable that didn't mean that we thought he was unimpeachable perfect. or perfect or that there was no possibility of something bad out there about him it was just based on what we saw in the show right I guess my feeling on this is we can only talk about what we know and what we see and our focus in covering the show. Like we're not putting our head in the sands, but our focus is on what the show is putting out, what the narrative the show is pushing forward is and what that says about about the culture. So of course, I agree. I don't want to feel like we are unintentionally creating harm by saying good things about someone. But I also think that it's not that useful to kind of sort people or try to determine who's capital G good and capital B bad. I just think that that is not how human beings work. I think that doing the work of our show would and listening to it would just be a complete bummer if we were never allowed to indulge in what makes the show fun, which I think is kind of seeing getting into this like 
classic romantic narrative and approaching it as a narrative. I am not the morality arbiter of any of these people because guess what? Like we don't know them and there's always a chance that someone who you don't know could have done something that you think is shitty. Right. If we are looking, watching the show and we're like, Eric seems so great. Like he's charming. I like his vibe with Gabby. That doesn't mean, hey everyone, we checked Eric out and he's... (laughs) He's certified good guy to like. And if information comes to our attention, which it did, we try to never shy away from incorporating that into our commentary and our worldview at an appropriate proportion to still just talking about what's happening on the show. And we just try to approach it that way so that we still get to have the show be focused on on watching what's unfolding and having it be fun and not just a sour face. I bet this guy sucks, but we haven't figured out why yet because men usually suck and he's one of them. (laughs) Because bad stuff comes out about so many of them, but it's not guaranteed. So (laughs) you just hope for the best and try not to say anything that's too over the top about how perfect they are. Yeah, I think we have tried to dial ourselves back in in that respect. (laughs) We've been disappointed enough Chastened over the years. Let's move on. Fuck, Mary, kill, Zach, Clayton, Matt. Can you both fuck and marry Matt James? Is that allowed? <laughs> That's just you picking Matt at the end of the show. Yeah, that breaks the rules. This is a tough one. This is actually a really tough one for me. I don't want to kill any of them. I don't want to kill any of them. I think they're they all, all nice seem nice. Guys, nice people. So we won't kill them. We'll just say. No, we have to. That's the game. <laughs> all right. I'm going to kill zach i'm going to fuck clayton and marry matt i was gonna say the same thing i feel bad i, I need i feel bad zach is really nice but clayton i have seems to kill more him fun to me i agree and i feel that zach if he was killed then would save us from having to watch this upcoming season thinking strategically and i like <laughs> it yeah i i think that matt and clayton seem more fun and i would rather spend time with them so Plus, you make a really good point. If you weren't married or dating your SOs, which person from Bachelor Nation would you date? Like none. None of them, probably. <laughs> Pretty much none of them. I mean, to be them. clear, also, none of them would want to date me. Right. So that's like... Yeah. Well, it's also like I have met some of the guys that I've had crushes on on the season or felt like were the most compatible with my vision of what a partner would be. And while I still like a lot of them, once I meet them, I'm always like, oh, no, they're still a bachelor person. They're a reality TV person. I'm I'm released from my crush. Or it's just so clearly not a romantic vibe in any way that you're just like, why would I have a crush on this person was fun to have a crush on when they weren't a real person. Right. Now that they're a real person, I don't have a crush on them. I truly think on some of the kind of person who would go on a TV show, even just for a lark. There there are some guys I really liked on the show. You know, Derek, I, I love. Michael G. from Desiree's season, two of our friends. Nick, I had a big crush on on the show. You meet them and they can be more or less distinct from the kind of person you might date in real life. But fundamentally, the kind of guy that I wanted and dated and married is someone who would never go on the show. They're just they're just like different species almost, you know? Yeah, and it's not like a I, negative judgment or a ding because as Claire said, we have wonderful friendships with some of these people that I think like transcend yeah. the franchise. And they are there are a lot of people that we have met in Bachelor world that I'm like so grateful to have in my life yeah do I want to date them or do I see that reliably I would date them like no yeah no it just it's I do think there's just like a different (laughs) sort of type of personality even within the realm of personalities that go on the show I don't see any like I don't see any overlap with me (laughs) the last yeah like from the last season the only one and I I can feel like I can talk about the last season because we haven't met anyone so it's sort of just easier to to talk about them as just what we've seen Jason oh yeah someone who like once he's on the (laughs) show you're just like he should never have been on the show exactly terrible on tv repelled by the format I'm like yeah Yeah. no you're right boy I'm like I could date Jason (laughs) I could see that but I bet if I met him I would again have that feeling of like 
just now, but he's the closest. You're right. He's the I closest. Of. Yeah. That's a really good point. How do you handle friendships with Bachelor folks and you also have to cover them in the show? This is more for uh, you, Emma, because I never hang out with anyone anymore. <laughs> I'm, I don't hang. <laughs> I, I have, again, I have a lot more time. I, I'd say delicately, I think the good thing is that, yeah, there are a handful of people that I have met a few times that are still involved with the show but most of the people that I actually have friendships with like Derek like Michael Garofola like Charlene like are not they're not on TV anymore I don't have to analyze them you know I am friendly with Romeo he lives in New York I told him to be clear sounds like you did some shit on paradise I'll be dunking on you like I think we try not to give people a pass I think we definitely told Nick when he was on Paradise that we were gonna yeah critique the hell out of him and yeah I mean Nick is also someone that we do have a friendship with and I handled that by like I don't always agree with Nick and we have a real world relationship so we can like actually talk about those disagreements on a on a personal level and I think one thing about Nick and this is an important quality if you're gonna be going on The Bachelor and and as he loves to do, befriend commentators. You have to have a really thick skin. He will yeah. solicit criticism from us. He'll be like, what did I, did I do something wrong? Explain to me. <laughs> you know, like, you know, that's, we've been friends for a long time, but there, there is like a lack of taking it personally that, yeah. um, that definitely helps there. Personally, I do prefer, you know, when we were starting out, we were scrappy. We were just befriending people because we wanted them to come on the show, basically. Yeah, there wa- there also just wasn't the larger ecosystem on their end. Like the influencer pipeline really wasn't right. such a thing as it is now. The The Bachelor commentary ecosystem and podcast, most of them didn't exist. On both ends, it was just a different world. And I do think that I don't have close friendships with people who have been on the yeah. show. I don't think we super seek recently. them out anymore. Be- yeah. And partly because we don't want to feel like our commentary is biased or like it's causing tension in a friendship. Like it's just w- not a dynamic we want to continue to seek out. Also, again, they are getting a lot younger than us. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like at this point, the only people that I have – met from more recent seasons are people that I met because of like Charlene or Nick yeah yeah you know it's not it's not like we're not seeking out yeah those those connections yeah anymore and that's not to judge anyone who who does I think we're just we're older we have less time and I think we feel really good about the connections within that world that we have made and we see those friendships as as just separate from yeah from our coverage yeah how to not feel terrible while still watching the bachelor why can't i quit <laughs> first quit of all if i want to say to. you can quit you are allowed to quit we release you yeah. like you're allowed to quit if you're not finding joy in something you can just disconnect from it i think that yeah. that is fair you can also take a break and see how it feels and come back or watch yeah. part of a season or just listen to people recap it. I do that with a lot of Bravo shows yeah. when they start to bum me out. I know it can be hard. It's like an addiction. The beginning of each season feels hopeful. You're like, I've had so many good experiences, so many high and then highs. And you get like too deep in and you're like, well, I can't stop I now, can't stop but this now. feels awful. You find yourself like taking a shot and bracing yourself before you start the three-hour finale instead of being like, ooh, I've been waiting all day for this. You're like, oh, fuck, here we go. That's not a good feeling. And yet you cling to all the positive memories you have with the franchise how not to feel terrible I wish I knew I feel like I don't know I literally have had therapy sessions like Katie's season we've talked about this literally sent us both into emergency therapy like (laughs) it's you know it is it is hard not to to feel terrible while watching or talking about the show and yeah I think we are still figuring out how to do that I I certainly have found that like as much as I can find the joy and the silliness in the whole endeavor. Yeah. That, that certainly helps. And I, again, would just really encourage people who don't have to cover the show for work that yeah. it's okay to disconnect from it. Please, for yours. I, and, and like on one level, I want people 
to watch because it is our work. And the more people who watch, the more people who listen, that's just business, right? I'm just to be perfectly honest. But I always do encourage people to stop if they want to, because not only for their own personal mental health, but because I do worry that with the show in this really negative place where it is right now, I wish that they would see people's discomfort with what's happening on the show reflected in viewership numbers. And I don't know if that's the case. You know, I want them to be incentivized to make changes. And that's why I did want people to maybe watch Rachel's season, Matt James' season, season, Rachel's season, season, Michelle's season, Michelle's season. But when they're giving us this bullshit and then they're giving us Zach, part of me is like, please stop watching. And, you know, that is part of also the ethical quandary of continuing to cover Mm -hmm. it, which we've talked about many times and we'll continue to talk about it. But if you are watching and we are watching and we're covering it, one thing that does help, I think, is to try to push for positive change, you know, participate in these, you know, roses for everybody, you know, bachelor diversity campaign, try to really push the show to make positive changes. Yeah, like, we are funding this show, in essence, with our eyeballs with our commentary. And so I do think it is, it, it does help to feel better. And also it is our responsibility to kind of try to push the show into mm-hmm. a place where it would make us less less miserable and then yeah and to to try to really process the things that make us feel shitty on the show as honestly and thoughtfully as possible on and off the podcast because I always feel better if we have a conversation about something horrible that happened that gave me some more insight or clarity and and that felt really honest so absolutely yeah I think that we are going to wrap here. We got a lot of amazing questions about the show, about other things. I will say most of our Bachelor content, as you all know, does live on Love to See It. If you guys are interested in having us do more questions about The Bachelor, we would love to plan mailbag episodes for Love to See It. So we were excited to see so many questions about The Bachelor for this rich text. And let us know if you want us to do it again, and and we can start working those into our Love to See It schedule and of course remember to if you are a subscriber or if you would like to become a paid subscriber that we will be releasing part two of this q a and the questions will be more personal yeah more intimate fantasy suite style and that is it for this episode of rich text Rich Text is hosted, produced, and edited by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray. You can find the written version of Rich Text at clareandemma.substack.com. You can find us on Instagram at Claire and Emma Pod, and you can find our other podcasts, Love to See It, over at Stitcher and wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on TikTok and Twitter at Love to See It Pod. You can also find us individually on social media at Claire E. Fallon and at Emma Lady Rose. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with our subscribers-only personal mailbag episode. 